Brian, you have personally been impacted by violence at work, right? Can you tell us your story of how you were impacted? It happened last July 2020, so almost a, a year ago now. Um, I was charge nurse uh, right at Change of Shift, and we had an individual that was in our department overnight. He was coming in for behavioral health emergencies. He was brought in by the police. He was refusing to go back in his room. He was uh, displaying some physical posturing, defensive-type stance, um, not listening to staff. So the staff called what we call a code gray, which is the overhead page for resources for personnel to show up. Police were there, PSO were there, the mental health workers were there, the nurses were there. It was a big team, and we were trying to communicate and de-escalate. We spent a large time trying to talk to this individual and to uh, let him know that we were there to take care of him. Probably spent a half hour, and he just would not move. He was out in the hallway um, near other patients' rooms. One of our mental health workers went in to direct him back into the room, got in kind of close proximity, and the individual started to fight and posture, um, started to attempt to grab on the patient. So we came in and utilized holding skills to protect the patient and ourselves. Well, when we were using those holding skills, I think I had a hold of his arm to prevent him from harming himself or others, we kind of all went to the ground, and I wound up moving in the wrong way and tweaking my back and landing on the ground. Uh, I developed some back pain, uh, became more and more severe. As the day went on, I had to leave work, and I actually checked into the ER for pain control later that night because it was some of the worst pain I've had. I was out for the entire month of July with back pain, had an MRI done, wound up I had a, a bulging disc that was um, impinging on my nerve root, tried conservative treatment, it got worse, and then by October I was set for urgent surgery because it gotten worse and I actually developed a foot drop, I actually lost some nerve function in my foot. So this was a three-month period of back and forth MRIs. Uh, epidural pain shots. I had an EMG test that confirmed I had some nerve damage. And then finally, uh, went through surgery at the end of October. Nothing was seeming to help it. So um, it really impacted my home life. Uh, it brought a level of stress to my home. You know, I was physically unable to do the things that I wanted to do. And I was really just kind of consumed by this pain and kind of narrowed down to an individual that had a back injury and had a lot of pain. So it, it impacted my work life. It impacted my uh, home life um, quite a bit. Um, great level of stress for me. When you think back about it, is there anything that you wish you'd done differently in that moment? I think just more time. We'd spent a lot of time to de-escalate, and I think we probably just should have spent maybe a little bit more time trying to de-escalate. I don't know if that would have changed the outcome, but just spending a little bit more time because realizing once things get to the, um, you know, the physical holding skills, and sometimes there's no option. Sometimes we have to do that, and I don't know if it would change the outcome. Maybe just spending a little bit more time trying to de-escalate. Brian, how did that event change the way that you interact with a escalating patient? Does it trigger anything inside of you? Does it impact you emotionally? Do you physically approach these things differently because of that moment? It, it does, you know, and, and being a healthcare provider in the emergency room, you have to be physically present and you have to be mentally there. And so when something impacts you, 
like a back injury and you're not a physically 100%, that can impact the way you deliver care. So that is definitely on my mind. I used to view myself as being physically fit, mentally fit, ready for the challenge of the day. Um, and now, so there's some doubts in there with my back injury. And so that physical component does carry over into the mental component. Um, it does have that uh, relationship where it kind of affects you. So I do approach those situations with somewhat of a little bit of doubt, somewhat of a little bit of uh, anxiety, you know, in case this turns physical. Um, there is a little bit of that doubt there. And so I've been trying to adjust and try to um, to really kind of mitigate that and, and kind of figure out what this means for me and how do I adapt my daily practice. But it is there for sure. This is EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. You might recognize the voice of the storyteller. That was Brian Strobin, the ED charge nurse who leads the charge in RED to create a safe environment. Last month, Brian shared a lot of important terms and shared a ton of practical tips to improve safety in your emergency department. If you haven't heard that yet, stop here and go back and listen. It's called Workplace Violence. It's not part of the job. Sarah, over the last few months, we have spent a lot of time talking about the violence that our patients experience in their lives. So today, let's flip the script and look at the violence or threat of violence that we experience in the emergency department. Yeah, the ED is really a unique environment. The hospital is supposed to be this safe, almost sterile place, and yet here we are at the eye of the storm. My stomach sinks every time I hear an overhead page for a code gray. And for those who don't know, a code gray at UC Davis signifies a violent or escalating patient, and a designated team then converges to protect the ED and the patient. You know, that sinking feeling, Sarah, is not unique In 2018, ASEP, or American College of Emergency Physicians, emailed out a survey about ED violence to its current members, and about 3,500 people responded. You can find this interesting report in our show notes to read more yourselves. I thought it was a really intriguing read. The report said that nearly 7 in 10 emergency physicians say emergency department violence is increasing. And nearly half of emergency physicians have been assaulted while at work in the emergency department, while over 70 percent have witnessed another assault. Only 10 percent have experienced neither. I wonder where those 10 percent work and are they hiring? (laughs) (laughs) But in a survey by the Emergency Nurse Association, they found that about 70 percent of emergency nurses reported being hit and kicked while on the job. That's horrible. And I have seen that myself on the job as well. So that same report says that a hit or a slap is the most common form of assault, about 44 percent. Though emergency physicians also report being spit on, punched or kicked. But an overwhelming majority of emergency physicians report that patients and visitors have made inappropriate comments or advances towards them. Not shocking to either of us, Sarah, Female emergency physicians are significantly more likely to have been on the receiving end of those inappropriate comments or unwanted advances in the emergency department. Yeah, not shocking. Yeah. (laughs) I found this quote from the report really interesting. 
Half of emergency physicians report that at least half of all assaults are committed by people believed to be seeking drugs or who are under the influence of drugs or alcohol. More than 40% of emergency physicians believe that more than half of assaults are committed by psychiatric patients. Right. So those are the most common causes or triggers for people to experience violence in the emergency department. So when it comes to what do we do about this violence, ASAP asked about that also. And they report that nearly 7 in 10 say their hospital reported the incident. So that's good. But yet only 3% press charges. And nearly half say hospitals can do more by adding security, cameras, metal detectors, and increasing visitor screening, especially in the emergency department. If you work in the ED, this is probably not surprising to you. You know this. You live this. So today, we explore this with two of my favorite Amys, who both happen to know a lot about workplace violence, Dr. Amy Mullen and Dr. Amy Barnhorst. So I'm Amy Mullen. I'm an emergency physician at UC Davis. And currently, I'm our behavioral health director for our emergency department, which means I specialize in our patients with acute psychiatric disorder and substance use. And I'm Amy Barnhorst. I like to bill myself as the Amy Mullen of the psychiatry department. <laughs> I, I'm the vice chair for community and hospital-based services, uh, which is kind of a fancy way of saying that I oversee all of our department's clinical sites within the community at the jail and at the county psych hospital and um, with the county community clinics and within the ED. And I'm, I also have an appointment in the Department of Emergency Medicine, which is where I thought I would always end up because I'm a big e- e- EM fan. Um, and I also run the Bullet Points Project, which is a fire and violence prevention curriculum for healthcare providers that's funded by the state of California. And that project is under the Department of Emergency Medicine in the UC Firearm Violence Prevention Research Center. Let's start off and describe how workplace violence has impacted you as providers. Has that ever been a part of your shift? I mean, this is sort of a daily occurrence on the emergency department, right? We see people at their worst. Nobody comes to the emergency department when they're having a good day. So, I mean, I think it's a constant balance between keeping your patients and your staff safe, but at the same time, respecting your patient's autonomy and providing a space where they feel like they're going to get care and they feel comfortable reaching out for help. Trauma-informed care is about assessing all of the trauma that someone has experienced in their life and being able to address it. That is not what we do in the emergency department, right? But we we can do is provide a space that respects where that person has come from and makes it so that they will continue to seek help. You know, if our space strips them of their rights to the extent where the person sees us as a net negative, that will decrease the likelihood that they seek help in the future. And it will delay when they seek help. And we will see that person at a much more acute phase when the risk of violence is higher. So every time we do a better job of meeting that person where they are and allowing them some autonomy and dignity is going to decrease the likelihood that we have a negative interaction in the future. 
So I mostly work in psychiatric hospitals or inpatient psychiatric units, but I also work in the ED seeing psychiatric patients. And given the kind of work I do, I feel very fortunate that I have not yet been the victim of a workplace assault or workplace violence. Um, I say yet because on some level it's a numbers game. I think if I do this long enough, it probably will happen to me. And so the best I can do is really just take precautions where I can and be extra careful. And the longer I do this work, the more important that is. For example, like I, when I'm on an inpatient unit or in the ED, I never wear anything around my neck, like no necklaces, no scarves. I'm really cautious about things like that. I always stay a certain distance from patients. I'm really vigilant about like open doors and wide open space if I can be. But I've seen a lot of trainees, especially, and other colleagues and staff that I work with be victims of workplace violence. Like in the ED, it's a pretty regular occurrence when you're working in a very acute psychiatric setting. So my job ranges from like providing emotional support to peers or trainees to helping enact policies that will reduce violence to, you know, working with staff to try to like understand where it came from. It is a constant thing. And I think the ED is a place where it's really high risk, maybe even more so than inpatient psychiatric settings, because you guys are constantly seeing people coming in hot in this really acute phase, and you you don't get to say no. Amy Mullen, how does this constant, if not violence, but the threat of violence or the possibility of violence, let me say it that way, how does that impact you emotionally on a shift and your colleagues? I find this a challenging conversation, and this has been sort of a decades-long focus for me because I think we spend so much time worrying about this threat of violence towards us. And I mean us, meaning the entire emergency department, faculty, staff, residents, nurses, that we approach patients often with that fear. So many times we come in and the initial frame of the interaction, probably from the patient side, because they have a history of this, is that this confrontation is inevitable. And when we start with that inevitability where we're afraid of violence and the patient sees our need to come in with a ton of control, inevitably we go there. And so I've spent so much time trying to talk to people and we've put in all these systems around agitation teaching and scoring systems so that we're better able to recognize and to address people when there's still that moment for conversation before we've escalated the situation where we have to take over and take control, we have all the tools to deal with it. So we might as well try to work with someone to approach them in a way that is sort of calm and empowering first when we can. And then if we have to escalate and do the heavy takedown, fine. We have all the resources to do it. But I don't think we should start there. I don't think we should start with that question of, you know, how do you approach someone when you're afraid of them? Because that that already we've ruined that therapeutic relationship. What are some red flags that we can look for early on before we get to that moment? Well, I think it's important to at least upfront put out there that violence in the workplace in particular, it's not all driven by one thing. There's one model that breaks it up into three categories, and one is impulsive violence. So somebody just gets pissed off, and they're like, ah, this is, I've waited so long for my test results, or like, I didn't get what I wanted, and a nurse happens to be walking by, or an ED physician, and they just like lash out and shove that one person, because they just couldn't control themselves. And in another setting, they might not have been pushed to the brink that way, and then they might apologize and feel really bad. 
Then there's psychotic violence, which is like, this person is living in a different reality. They think their life is in danger. They think the whole staff is plotting against them. They think somebody's coming at them to kill them. You know, they may be like a lovely, peaceful person, but they think that someone is going to, you know, kill them or their children. In that situation, most of us might get aggressive and act out. And so those people, you have to kind of address in a little bit of a different way than somebody who's impulsively violent. And then I think we've all seen the folks who were more, um, their violence is a little more calculated or predatory. It's like, I want X and I'm willing to do Y to get it, whether it's like my opioids prescription or, you know, some other thing that I'm going after that somebody doesn't want to get me a discharge, an admission, whatever it is. And they're willing to really think through like, what's the highest impact way I can work folks to get what I want. And those kinds of violence you have to you know, they have different red flags, they have different interventions. They can all overlap as well. So you can have like a psychotic person who is going to be pushed to the brink of violence because they're more generally impulsive. So I think for impulsive people, the red flags are things like they, they didn't get what they want. They're getting frustrated. They're making more demands. They're expressing that their demands aren't being met. You know, like any kind of physical agitation, clenching and unclenching fists, like looking around, trying to wave down people, their voices getting louder. Whereas psychotic people, you know, the, the stimulus in this case is internal. So they're almost like withdrawing more. Their eyes are scanning around more. They're looking more and more afraid and paranoid. They're expressing more fear. I mean, most psychotic violence is driven by fear. And then the calculated predatory violence is like, you see the signs because they're like making threats, asking for stuff, bargaining, manipulating. And I think in the emergency department, in reality, we we see a combo of all. So it's the person who has maybe an underlying mental illness or not, but certainly has some stimulant use. Like it's sort of a combo presentation. And then if you think about what the environment is, frequently you're in a place that is loud. It is chaotic. Your restricted access to just general stuff like bathroom, food, water, you might have nicotine dependence. And just in the moment of maximal stress, we send you into nicotine withdrawal. And so a lot of the teaching that we have done in our emergency department, and that when I talk to others about this, is like, fix the easy stuff. If I can give someone nicotine, like that is easy. Access to food, access to water, access to the bathroom, a quiet, calm space, that can go a huge long way to preventing that escalation. We're super busy in the emergency department and we're prioritizing patients based on their acuity. And for us, you know, that's ABCs. Like this person has asthma. They're having trouble breathing. This person has an MI. I'm worried about their circulation. But for our potentially agitated patient, like these are sort of the warning signs that we're going to escalate and we're going to become sort of that high need, high intervention patient. And so to kind of think about If I do these early interventions, if I give them their bronchodilators for asthma, maybe I'm not going to need advanced airway equipment. So I have to do the easy stuff first to prevent the escalation and increasing in the severity of their disease process. It's a way to reframe and reprioritize what I consider the easy stuff, nicotine replacement, let that person have access to the bathroom. Because, you know, we all get frustrated when we don't have our basic needs met. And unfortunately, that's just sort of an inherent characteristic of the emergency department. I love that asthma analogy. That makes a lot of sense. 
We have seen an increase in uptick in mental health needs in the emergency department, in visits, in lack of resources. All of you guys know this intimately. Have we also seen an evolution in workplace violence in the emergency department in your careers? I wonder about this a lot. Is there this massive increase in mental illness, or is there a massive increase in stimulant use in our community? And I kind of wonder, like, what would our resource need be for, you know, things like inpatient psychiatric hospitalization if I didn't have that population with stimulant use disorder? One of the after effects of the pandemic, particularly for our our youth, young adults and adolescents, has been kind of that increase in mental health needs, right? We've seen that nationwide. So I don't want to discount that there's an increased need out there, particularly given the the stress that people have gone through with the pandemic. But I also think from the everyday emergency department, I mean, a lot of it is stimulants and substance use that is sort of combined in and sort of presents similarly. And it's difficult for us to tease out in that acute moment who needs what and where they need to go. So stimulant use is one of those red flags or risky scenarios for workplace violence. And we have seen an increase in that, obviously, over the past several years. Correct. Yes. You know, they're they're combined, not mutually exclusive, but I think that that goes into why we feel this more. I think one of the things I've seen in the mental health system is the need has increased but the resources have not really. And so what's happened is if you think of everything as sort of a continuum of care from like the most acute people with serious mental illness living in long-term locked facilities that are designed to have people who are not going to be able to be independent or safe in the community to like an outpatient mental health provider that sees you every three months and, you know, prescribes your antidepressant and then all the stuff in between. The problem is at the higher levels of our system, We don't have enough resources for the people who need them. So everything gets backed up. So now we have people who should be living in long-term care facilities in the acute psych hospitals. And then we have people who should be in acute psych hospitals in the ERs. And we also have people who should be in high-level intensive community placements in the ERs. And we also have people who are out on the street and don't have any linkage in the ER. So the ER is like where all of these streams flow into when they get backed up. And they're very backed up right now. The whole system is backed up. So... That means that people are being seen in settings that they are too acute for, for a longer term. Normally, folks would come into the ED if they needed a psychiatric bed, and they'd be there for a couple hours and get out and go to a psychiatric facility where we're better equipped to manage aggression from psychiatric emergencies. And that's not the case anymore. Now they're staying in the ED for days, if not weeks. And meth has obviously not helped this at all. And then when you add in a layer of, you know, economic stress, social pressures, political pressures, changes in shelter beds and housing problems, you stress a lot more people who had pre-existing mental illness that might have been doing well and might have been making it. And now you've kind of pushed them into homelessness. When you're homeless, you might start using meth again because you're back out on the street and everything sort of falls apart. So I think the pandemic hasn't created more mental illness, but it's pushed people who were able to manage their mental illness into a place where that's a lot more difficult. So it's kind of shifted the spectrum. I also wonder, as we've, as Amy says, stressed the system, am I seeing people at a more acute phase? 
is the system so stressed that people are trying so hard not to come in that by the time I do see them, we've really missed a window to provide more mitigating treatment. All right, let's talk about what we do when we identify somebody who's at risk. Okay, Amy, they come in and they are wheezing. (laughs) They're in the albuterol phase of this. (laughs) Um, What can we do to help de-escalate? The ideal setting is that we would recognize someone who is at risk for escalating. We frequently actually have people because I review a lot of these cases, who will come in and say, literally say, you know, a little bit loose association, so it doesn't entirely make sense, but essentially say to them, I don't feel safe. I am worried about escalating, right? That is their chief complaint. Like, I don't feel safe. I'm agitated. Someone is chasing me, blah, blah. So my chief complaint is like, I feel like I'm going to escalate and I need help. And frequently, we don't take that for what it is. We don't recognize the acute asthma exacerbation until they need intubation. But ideally, what we would do is we would say, oh, okay, you are presenting with a risk of an acute need for agitation. And what I should do is mitigate. So a quiet, calm space, nicotine replacement, God bless, it can save so much. And then, you know, provide autonomy where we can. Ideally, you could say, okay, so what works for you? You know, give people options for oral medications if you wanted an IM medication. But in that moment when you can give people choices, if they want, when they come in and they want help, we have frequently an opportunity to give that person a choice and to engage them in their care and potentially sort of make that person an ally Frequent that is not what happened is we do, do, don't do the quiet calm space and we don't address it until they've really made their needs known. And at that moment, we sort of miss the opportunity to engage that person in care. But ideally, we would recognize on arrival the subpopulation that wants to work with us and take advantage of that moment. Yeah, I like this idea of like catching it early. And, and again, I think it's helpful to think about like, which type of violence or, you know, more than one answer can be correct, but might this person be at risk for, you know, if it's a really psychotic person who's really paranoid, just because they're not impulsive and they don't seem like a bad person doesn't mean they might not do something to protect a perceived threat to their life. And, you know, folks that are going to threaten or do violence because they want something from you, that's going to be a really different intervention of like setting really firm boundaries, being clear and consistent, maybe moving them out of the ED as quickly as possible. Whereas somebody who's impulsively violent, you're not going to see it coming as much, but you do kind of know they're impulsive. And so that's really, really extra important to keep them in that calm, quiet space that, you know, there's so much of in the ED, I know. Um, (laughs) But like really, really preventing them from getting into a situation where they've lost it, like kind of addressing their increasing frustration early. All right. So now we're into the needing magnesium and heliox phase. (laughs) Okay. You got to explain what that means for your non-ED audience. (laughs) Me. (laughs) I need to define my terms here. Yes. All right. We are the next level of threat. We're not quite at the takedown spot. What are some of the more aggressive de-escalating techniques that we can use? Is that an oxymoron? Aggressive de-escalation? Aggressive <laughs> no, I don't think it should be. I like it, actually. 
it really depends what resources you have at hand also, because if it's just you in the room with the patient, your aggressive de-escalation technique is to get the hell out of there ASAP. But if you see this coming and you have a whole staff behind you and you have time and it's brewing, but it's not quite there, the best thing you can do is get everybody together, the doctors, the nurses, security, the mental health workers, everybody, get them all on the same page, talk about the patient, talk about what their triggers are, what's causing the violence, what's leading to it, what kind of violence they've engaged in in the past, what helps them, and come up with a plan, have a leader of that plan, and enact that plan as a united front. And the times that I've seen this go so well have been like on an inpatient psych ward, but you know it's very transferable to the ED where we have a patient who is psychotic and impulsive, really escalating, pacing back and forth in their room, clenching and unclenching their fists, muttering to themselves, obviously very frightened, but very angry as well. And we've had a few minutes to pull everyone together and have kind of a meeting. And, um, you know, I can remember this one mental health worker who's, he's this huge guy. He's very physically intimidating, but he is so good at making himself an ally and making himself collaborative and making himself non-threatening. And he went up to this patient with the whole staff kind of behind him, ready to act, ready to do what they needed to do, whether that was something like a physical takedown, whether that was IM meds. We were all there with all of our tools. But he went up and he sat. I remember him. He sat down in a chair in front of this huge, agitated, angry patient with a big history of violence. He sat in a chair and he was chewing gum really loudly. And in my mind, I thought, like, the administration is going to cite him for chewing gum. That's going to be their takeaway from this incident. But the gum chewing and the sitting in the chair really made him seem like a buddy. You know, he sat down and he was like, let me help you. What is going on? I'm just a guy in my chair chewing gum who wants to help you out. And they they were able to like talk and work it out because he presented it as this like very collaborative approach of like, I'm here to meet your needs in a non-threatening way. Look at me. I'm sitting lower than you. I'm talking calmly. I'm working this out. And he just like brought, he like injected the whole stressful scenario with this like very, very calming attitude. I 100% agree, except for the conference before where we get to discuss the patient's triggers and come up with a plan because I feel like we never know that. Yeah, you guys don't know that. Although, you know, oftentimes we do in on the psych team because we see the same patients over and over. And so we know if somebody is psychotically violent or predatorily violent, like we'll have a sense. But you guys don't often know because you see so many people coming in. You don't know them as well. But Amy, we do have time, though, often to come like my, the ones that have gone well for me are the ones where we take a quick time out beforehand and have a plan and have a clear leader, just like before I do when I'm expecting a, you know, a CPR at 6 a.m. from a SIDS, right? Like I set up a plan. Everybody knows their roles. We know who's going to be doing the talking, who's going to be doing those things. And I may not know all of their triggers, but we often do know what the context of that is. And not everybody does. You know, when we <laughs> call for code gray and everybody comes in, they don't know this patient. And so taking a quick second to talk about the context of it and defining roles, I, for me, it's been very helpful. I 100% agree with being able to have that strategy of verbal de-escalation and then combine it with a fast-acting benzodiazepine like midazolam. (laughs) No, but I mean, if you can have kind of that approach of like verbal de-escalation and sort of one of the end goals is a fast-acting benzodiazepine so that you can kind of bit yourself in a better spot, um, generally is my strategy. And the concept of the code gray 
I recognize has to happen in some situations where someone is picking up the EKG machine to throw it across the room. Like we need the code gray response. However, I think frequently we pull that trigger before it becomes therapeutic. So coming in with a, a large show of force, frequently, you know, people in uniform, security guards can often be triggering. And we have now changed what should be a healthcare interaction to a sort of law enforcement type interaction of gaining control of a situation where I have to show that I am in charge and I have all of the control. That kind of ruins any sort of therapeutic interaction that you're going to have. So we absolutely have to do it, but I think it needs to be much more of a last resort than it often is. And the minute you come in with that huge show of force and the security guards, you have to recognize like you lost because there's no way that you're going to go from that to this verbal de-escalation rapid acting benzodiazepine plan that is usually my intermediate plan. Now, sometimes like I try the verbal de-escalation, I try the rapid acting benzodiazepine, that fails and we continue to escalate and we have to go in. But once the security guard comes in, that's over. That's, you know, you've committed yourself to paralytics and a ventilator. I mean, there's just in our asthma analogy, like you, you lost. Absolutely. I was just going to say, I feel like we kind of morphed from magnesium and <laughs> heliox to ECMO and intubation. Yes. <laughs> but you have to recognize, like, when you call security, you just called for intubation drugs. Like, you're, there's no coming back from that. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And in fact, I have used that term many times. Well, I just lost that. Well, I I lost that one. <laughs> and that is usually how I feel. It feels defeating, honestly, to have to be to that level. And I like having various tools that I can use before I get to that spot because it is huge. It's super dangerous. We We just created a much more dangerous situation. When you come in and you start from that place of fear, and you feel like you need security, you've already lost. And so the more that we can take a deep breath, approach that patient from a place of compassion, from a healthcare mindset, the better off we are because we really can't approach people from fear. And we should never be afraid because we have all the resources in the world. We can control the situation. It's just a matter of trying everything we can before we have to go there. Now, Amy, you know this probably better than anybody. There are a lot of hospitals that have varying level of resources and varying level of ability to deal with those moments. Um, you know, my parents lived up in the Napa Valley and had a one doc emergency department, you know, with four rooms and they're on for 24 hours with three other nurses, <laughs> with three nurses, you know, their ability to respond to that moment is very different than ours at UC Davis. Um, what are some ways that emergency departments and systems can back up those emergency departments to reduce that possibility of violence? You're correct. If you're in a lower resource environment, the concept of being able to activate a code gray team to being able to activate a crisis team, I think is really important to be able to have that as an option should be more reassuring to people. 
It's sort of like having a code team, right? If someone codes, if there's that crisis moment, we need that whole team approach. We need a lot of people to come to the bedside. Being able to activate that and having a system in place, maybe it's the lift team of the hospital, but being able to pull in resources, even if it means you do that less, because you have the ability to do that, I think is important. Like Building that team should mean I don't need to pull these resources until later, not I have this team, great, I'm going to pull that trigger every time. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think having a, an organized team that is trained and specializes in this is so crucial. But I also think that there is something to be said for, I'll, I'll argue against Amy's don't go in with no fear, because one of the things I see in the people who, um, who've gotten assaulted in places where I've worked is commonality, not in every incident, but it's very common, are people who didn't recognize the limits of what they could do with the therapeutic alliance. And it was people who thought, I can make a difference. I can connect. I can do trauma-informed care. I can build rapport. I can make this situation better. And it's kind of this like physician hubris we all have, right? Like, um, I'm the one who can fix this. But they should have gotten the hell out of there way sooner. The patient is saying, I don't want somebody in here. I don't feel safe. I don't want you. Please get out. Move away from me. And they're like, no, no, I can help. And that lack of boundaries on their part and the lack of understanding the patient's boundaries, and those two things are related, was often what led to the assault. And so I think, you know, the idea of, of approaching without fear maybe works in people who have a really good sense of boundaries and can read other people's boundaries. But I think for some people, they go too far in thinking, I alone can fix this, rather than being like, I should now call in that team who doesn't just do the physical interventions, but they're the de-escalation team also. And there's the, the leader out in front, that person who approaches it in advance with the team backing them and does the verbal de-escalation, talks through their needs, works it out from a safe distance with good boundaries and with the backing of the team should they need more. With the, with the benzos ready. Yeah, maybe we, should, we can compromise and approach patients with confidence and humility. And, and a, a lot of distance between us. And fast-acting benzos. And fa always the fast-acting benzos. I'm a, I'm a big fan of those. I like it. Confidence, humility, and I would add competence to this. And I think you two are people who competently deal with these situations, right? That are kind of hard on your soul, hard, can be hard on your body at times. Um, how have you guys gotten your chops to be able to deal with these moments? And what do you recommend for others to increase their own competency? I learn a lot from watching other people and talking through things. We debrief every incident that happens, and I think that's really important to talk about what worked, what didn't work, who got hurt, what could have gone better, what resources would, do we wish we have. We often find things like, oh, well, we thought we were going to put them to the seclusion room, but we didn't realize it was, you know, being cleaned right now, or we thought we'd do the restraints, except we were missing the one that has the buckle we needed, or, you know, finding out that some resource hasn't been kept up the way it should have been. It's one of those, like, I don't know that I'm good at this at all by any stretch of imagination. And, you know, the skills that make you a good ER doctor don't often make you a good verbal de-escalation connecting on that level. Um, and so mostly I feel like I'm generally not good at it. I would love to be the person that knows how to do that, that can instantly connect with people on that level who are in crisis. But mostly I come from this and think, like, I don't, I don't want to make it worse. You know, it's sort of that do no harm. And so to try and not make it worse. And I, I do consider like if we have 
escalated someone and now we're in four points and we're at the B52 I am Haldol place that I do consider that a little bit of a, a loss and to think, you know, how could I do it better? But I, I also think that many of my colleagues see that as a win. Oh, we took control of the situation. That is not a win. And so I just want to like reframe like, oh, that person is quiet. Now we won't hear from them from several hours. That is a loss. You know, the, the goal should be recovery, not quiet. And the other thing that I consider a loss is now every time that person comes back, they will have the memory of being strapped down and pumped full of drugs, right? That's what they say. They just strap me down and pump me full of drugs. And that is true. That is true. And because they have that memory, now they come back with that memory of this is what's going to happen. And that becomes more likely. And it's going to decrease the likelihood that they look for help in other ways, right? That's just sort of compounds. You know, we talk about trauma-informed care and really my goal is not to inflict more trauma. And there I just inflicted more trauma. So it's mostly a matter of reframing what I see as a win because I see that as a loss. Yeah. I worry about that with kids in particular, you know, these young adults. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're setting them up for the rest of their lives for their expectations. And this trauma is going to impact how they even see a regular doctor, right? Go in to get their shots like this changes everything. This is a moment where their paradigm has shifted. It's really hard. And I mean, frequently, it's one of those just totally impossible situations. And so I recognize, like, I fail more than I succeed. But Always try. Pulse check. Workplace violence is a real problem for us as a specialty. And it's not just you. 50% of ED physicians and 70% of nurses report a history of violence. The key to workplace violence is prevention. Meet the patient's basic needs. Now, this sounds silly, but it is easy to overlook in a busy emergency department. Think about nicotine replacement, bathroom access, food, and communicate. Approach with trauma-informed care. If that doesn't work, try verbal de-escalation. Be aware of your surroundings and your own body language. Do your best to be non-threatening. If that doesn't work and you need to use medications like a rapid-acting benzodiazepine, be intentional. Have policies in place. Practice as a team. Make a plan, identify roles, and after debrief, treat it like any other high-risk event in the emergency department. Approach with confidence, competence, and humility. Today we talked some about how stimulants impact violence in the ED. Next, we will explore how stimulant use impacts the ED and our patients. In the meantime, tell us your stories about violence in your ED and how you stay safe at work. Share with us at e-impulse Podcast. If this strikes a chord with you, share this podcast with your colleagues and start the conversation about how you can prevent violence in your own ED. Thank you to OM Audio Productions for always providing a safe place to record. And thank you to our department for looking out for each other. See y'all next time. <laughs>